we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 this won't hurt a bit. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for another This Won't Hurt a Bit. We've got a special episode for you. We're going to be calling these episodes Second Opinions. And the idea is to go back and revisit some of the things that got brought up, but maybe need a little bit more explanation, like a medical word that we didn't clearly define, or maybe we need an expert to weigh in, but instead, you just got a couple ER docs rambling. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Reboa. What's up with that? Maggotors. Remember how we were talking about becoming maggot farmers? Well, we found an expert. And migraines. What the heck is up with all those non-headache symptoms? So without further ado-do, ado, let's talk Reboa. In the previous episode, you heard this when we were talking about Nellie Bly. It's Josh throwing out a term called Reboa. So, while many of us may look back at the late 1880s and smugly say, man, we were messed up back then. No surgical masks, no gloves, no reboa, and a staggering lack of compassion for people with mental illness. Thank God those times are over. We're so enlightened now. And you thought to yourself, self, what the heck are they talking about? Reboa, R-E-B-O-A. Resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. It just rolls off the tongue. So resuscitative means we're trying to get you back. Like, uh, if you're dead, we try to resuscitate you from cardiac arrest. Or if you're in shock, where you're bleeding a lot, we try to give you fluids and blood to bring you back to a normal state. Endovascular, meaning going in through a vessel. Balloon. Okay, so it's a balloon. Occlusion, where we blow up the balloon and we block something of the aorta. The aorta is that big, important vessel that takes all the blood from your heart to the rest of your body. So it's resuscitative balloon occlusion of the aorta, a balloon that we blow up to stop bleeding from below where we put the balloon in. It's actually an idea from the Korean War, and it went like this. Somebody's just had a devastating injury to their legs and their lower belly, like they just stood on a landmine, and they're bleeding, bleeding fast. You can imagine stopping that bleeding can be really, really hard, even if you're in the operating room, but certainly if you're on the field or if you're in the emergency department. Normally we'd put direct pressure or tourniquets, but sometimes in these patients it just doesn't work. So Reboa was a technique that some smart doc thought might work in those circumstances. So what you do is you take a catheter and you put it in one of the big arteries in the leg, the femoral artery, and you advance it up, 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 up the body, up the aorta until it's just below the heart. Then you inflate a balloon at that site, and this occludes the blood flow going down the aorta. So you still have blood going up to the brain, but it stops the blood flow going down to where you're having bleeding or extravasation or hemorrhage. It stops that temporarily. Because, of course, your legs and the lower part of your pelvis and abdomen, well, they need blood. But you can stop it for a while if you're bleeding to death. So you put this catheter in, you blow the balloon up, and then you transport the patient as fast as you can to an operating room where the surgeons can try and salvage things and put things back together. Well, it was tried in a few patients in the Korean War who were dying. And although the patients still died, they showed that they could reduce blood loss in this fashion and that maybe, just maybe, we should do more studies on this. Well, it kind of got lost for about 50 years. 
But in fact, it's been rediscovered in recent years. But in civilian populations where you've had serious injuries to your legs, because it's pretty simple. It's sort of a needle and a plastic catheter that we could put up that artery, blow the balloon up, call the surgeons and say, this person's bleeding a lot, come on down. Let's get this person to the operating room so you can fix it. And now it's being studied in big trials across the United States right as we speak. So we did this on the medical show. We told the docs and the nurses about this technique and how it might be coming to an emergency department near you. And our friend Josh, our producer Josh from the medical show, made up a song because he likes to make songs. He made up a song to remind them about Reboa and some of the complications because clearly the biggest thing to remember is that you're going to have to take that balloon down after just a few hours or everything below that balloon is going to drop dead. Watch out Taylor Swift. Oh, she's coming for you. Resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta is the new thing. Just watch out for ischemic limb. Remember, you can leave it in, so put it in and get it out and do it fast and get it done before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and take it out before your patient's leg is gone. Put it in and I love that song. I think it should be in the top ten, but that's just me, a little bit biased. Nice work, Josh. enormous headache in my eye. So Mel, another thing we talked about that I want to revisit is migraines. And we talked about something that you had when you were little. The Alice in Wonderland syndrome that I had as a kid, where I had disordered perception, where everything was going fast or slow and things were getting big and things were getting small. We had a whole discussion about where that came from on the Lewis Carroll book. And there's this idea that maybe Lewis Carroll also had uh, migraines. And some patients with migraines get this bizarre distorted reality. The word migraine has a Greek derivation. It comes from half the brain, hemicrania. So hemicrania, micrania, migraine. And that's because the classic migraine syndrome is a headache of half the head. And usually there's nausea and vomiting and light sensitivity, which we call photophobia. So it's sort of a syndrome. And remember that a syndrome is just a constellation of symptoms that tend to occur together. So like I mentioned, one of the really interesting things is we think of migraines as headaches, of course, because classically that's what they are, but there's actually a whole bunch of variants of migraines that may or may not even involve a headache. Often, frequently, these are called prodromal symptoms. They occur just before you get the headache. You don't have to get these symptoms every time you have a headache. And sometimes you can have these symptoms, as we've talked about, and not get headache, which is the crazy thing. So first of all, and most commonly, there's this thing called scotoma. Scotoma are these uh, abnormalities in your field of vision. And so you talk to migraine patients and they'll say this all the time. I know I'm about to get a headache because I'm reading a book and one of the pages disappears. That's a classic scotoma or scintillations. I know I'm about to get a headache because I can see these wavy lines in the periphery of my vision or right in the middle of my vision. Or people can complain of vertigo, which is the loss of your sense of balance, like things are spinning. Or like I had tunnel vision. The whole world seems to go and disappear down a long tunnel. Sometimes you can even get these auditory hallucinations, which is kind of like patients with schizophrenia might hear voices 
when they're getting this migraine coming on. Some people can get something called hemisensory dysesthesia. So hemi, half, sensory, sensation, and dysesthesia, which is a, a pins and needles feeling. So half the body gets this pins and needles sensation. Hemiplegic migraine, again, is like hemiplegic, half the body, and plegia is like, I can't move it. So either one of those could mimic a stroke. Another one like that is ataxia. Ataxia is when you can't sort of, it's the drunken person. You can't uh, get your balance. You can't walk properly. You're falling to the left. You're falling to the right. There's cyclic vomiting where you get lots and lots of puking. Another one is abdominal migraine. I talked about that. I had that as a kid. I couldn't move at all because I had this horrible abdominal pain. Again, probably one of these migraine variants. There's ophthalmoplegic migraines, which is when you have paralysis of some of the eye muscles. So the eyes can't move together, and that causes crossed eyes and double vision. And then um, migraine-triggered seizures. Isn't that a nice one? So you're about to get a migraine, but it starts with a seizure. An epileptic sort of attack? Oh, that's not so good at all. So as you can imagine, these can be a real diagnostic challenge, especially if you have someone with a migraine history, but say they come in with that hemiplegic migraine and half their body's paralyzed. It's really hard to sort out whether or not they're having a stroke or just a migraine variant. So ladies and gentlemen, that's just a number, just a few of the prodromal, meaning before the headache can occur, non-headache, so sometimes you don't get a headache at all with these things, symptoms that can occur from migraine. So you might ask yourself, why? Why is this happening? I asked an expert, he said this. The question of what actually causes a migraine headache. That's Stuart Swadron, professor of emergency medicine at the Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles. Not what triggers the headache, the actual cause, what actually at a physiologic level causes the pain to happen, that's actually not settled in the medical scientific community. For many, many years, the leading theory was the vascular theory. And in summary, this theory held that the vessels in your brain would alternately constrict and dilate, and the constriction would result in all of these prodromal symptoms, and then the dilation of the vessels would produce the headache. It's actually a theory that has been around for hundreds of years. And it was suggested by one of medicine's most famous doctors. By the same guy who they named the blood vessels at the base of the brain after. His name was Willis. And every medical student knows about the circle of Willis, the spider of blood vessels at the base of the brain. But that theory is now in question. It's now suggested that perhaps that change of vessels that the physicians can see under various imaging techniques is actually secondary to something that's happening in the brain itself, and not the cause at all. The scientists that support this newer theory, the neuronal theory, they held that the migraine symptoms are actually the result of changes in the electrical transmission through certain parts of the brain. And you know, what's really interesting is that the scientists of the more modern neuronal camp, uh, they would argue that the exotic symptoms and the rather scary symptoms that a lot of migraine sufferers do have with either paralysis or blindness or pretty much stroke-like symptoms, these symptoms are actually evidence for their theory because it would be hard to explain just on the basis of the dilation or the construction of blood vessels, those type of real changes in brain function, they're much better explained by changes in the nerve transmission that's happening within the brain tissue itself. And so if you're thinking, those doctors don't really know what's going on, do they? Well, you would be correct. 
there's something going on with the nerves inside your brain is not really an explanation. It is an area of great interest and great research. And yet, mm, we don't know. Treatment. So I need to say just a few things about the treatment for migraine because uh, we're not your doctor. No, 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 we're not. But here is a sort of three broad categories of treatment for migraine. First of all, try and work out if there's a trigger. Some people have classic triggers. I get too tired. I get a migraine. I drink too much. I get a migraine. I smoke. I get a migraine. I eat chocolate. I get a migraine. Whoa, 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 Mel. Chocolate? No, that's not fair. If chocolate is a trigger, you should probably keep eating more and more chocolate to desensitize yourself. No, that's not true. You might have to stop eating chocolate. Oh, come on. That sounds terrible. So then if that doesn't work, or in addition to that, I should say, then there's a whole bunch of medications, a very long list of medications. Medications of different expense and side effects and effectiveness. And so you should work with your primary care doctor to see what medications will be best for you. And if you're having very frequent migraines, they may even start you on a prophylactic medication. And prophylaxis just means it's something you do to prevent the problem. So it's a prevention medication. And then the third big group is sort of the non-migraine therapy. So some people find that meditation really works or relaxation training or acupuncture. So those are the three main categories. One, identify the trigger and avoid it. Number two is medications. And number three is all the non-medical therapies that you can try. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that's just a wee, a sasson, a taste. Just a little bit of mm-mm when it comes to migraine in all its loveliness. And finally, on this second opinion episode, let's talk uh, maggots, maggotours, the people who uh, farm the maggots. Remember, Dave said this. Where do they get the maggots from? Oh, we were just talking about that, yeah. weren't we? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking I could be a maggot farmer. If nothing else works <laughs> for me, I could go into maggot farming, a maggotour. My name is Ron Sherman, and I'm a... <laughs> what do I do? I'm a physician trained in infectious diseases, who specializes actually in wound care and biotherapy. Oh, but Dr. Sherman, do not sell yourself so short. Because you, sir, you, sir, are a maggot farmer. Now, Dr. Sherman, I understand you have a background in entomology, but where was it that you got the idea to study maggots for debridement therapy? I had read about the practice from back in the late 1920s and 1930s, but it pretty much died out in the 1940s. And so he did a study, we call him a trial, where he looked at maggots to see how well they would, you know, clean wounds, because he was being asked to see a lot of wounds, a lot of wounds that were not responding to antibiotics or other forms of conventional wound care. And I realized what they really needed was to have all the the yucky stuff, all the dead tissue and debris removed from those wounds. And so Dr. Sherman, well, he does those studies and he shows that the maggot therapy works really well. But hold on, Mel, this is not the most fascinating part of the story. The most interesting part of the story is where he got the maggots from. And it starts with him researching the maggots that were used in the 1930s. There were three species that were commonly used. So I wanted to start with one of those, something where there was at least a a history of safety and efficacy to it. And the one species I knew was abundant in California was Phoenicia sericata. It's also known elsewhere in the world as 
Lucilia Sericata. So Dr. Sherman goes out to find himself some Lucilia. I took my net, I took my bottles and jars, a little bit of bait, and I went around everywhere from San Diego on the south up to Los Angeles in the north and uh, and just started catching flies. Not a big deal, right? You got your net, you got your jars, you're going out to find some flies, but there's a twist. Unfortunately, I didn't just need the right species. I needed a gravid female. I needed a female that could lay eggs. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Not only do you have to find a fly, and you have to catch it, and you have to put it in your jar, you have to find a mummy fly who's full of eggs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How long is that going to take? It's not like you can put it on Craigslist. Uh, Lucilia needed? Uh, pregnant Lucilia? Somebody? Hello? Beulah? And so it took about four months before I got what I was looking for. And that was a fly in Long Beach, California, that was uh, indeed a, a female who laid eggs, about 100 eggs, into my little cage at that time. Long Beach, California, the LBC, and it can now be known as the proud home of medical maggots. And all of the flies we have now are are descendants of hers. I know, one of the great capers of all of human history. Look, this raises so many other questions that we don't have time for. But let's talk about a few other things. First of all, are these clean or are these dirty, stinking maggots? We now use the word germ-free or disinfected maggots. It's all done chemically, and then a number of quality control tests are done afterwards to make sure that all the germs were really killed and yet the maggots themselves survived the process. All right, I'll believe you. So you got your clean maggot. It looks uh, beautiful. And Dr. Sherman tells us, you know, they get an order and within 24 hours they can send out the maggots. But they're hungry, very hungry. How hungry? Basically starving. They're waiting for that dead tissue to eat. So they're highly perishable. They cannot be stored. So how often do you have to prepare new maggots? So we have to make a batch, a new batch, almost every day so that we have fresh, healthy maggots to send out. Farm fresh, beautiful maggots. <laughs> they are timed to arrive within 24 hours of the procedure so that again, they are in a very healthy state, able to go onto the wound, start feeding, dissolving that necrotic tissue and they'll be finished within 48 hours. And how do you send them out? In what form do they go out? A media inside the vial that we ship them with that helps sustain them. But it's it's missing a few important elements so that they can't mature actually because you don't want them to be satiated by the time they arrive. So it helps them stay alive better. That's right. A special broth uh, that keeps the maggots alive but starving. You might call it maggot secret sauce. Oh, but it gets even better or grosser depending on how you think of it. What they do is they actually put these maggots in maggot impregnated gauze. So you don't actually handle individual maggots. You just lay on a gauze pad which has maggots inside it. Uh, nurse, can I get some um, gauze for this wound, please? No, 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 not the sterile gauze. No, no, the one with the maggots in it. So there you go. They send off a vial, and inside the vial is gauze. And inside the gauze is maggots. And then when it arrives, they cut out the gauze in the shape of the wound, and they carefully place it in the wound. The maggots go wild, and they eat all of that stuff, and you're cured. Uh, what could go wrong? Actually, it does work. Very well. His name is Dr. Sherman, and he is 
The Maggot Man. Thank you so much, Dr. Sherman. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I think we're going to have to call it done for this week. This was the first of our second opinion episodes. So here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the main show, all sound designed and lovely. And then the next week, we'll follow it up with one of these second opinion episodes where we go a little deeper, talk to some experts, really fill it out. Then we'll take a week off and we'll work with the elves and we'll create another great episode and follow it up immediately the next week with a second opinion. Rinse and, of course, repeat. Well, at least that's the plan for now. We do reserve the right to change it at any time. So our next episode will be in two weeks, and it's on death and dying. But no, 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 it's not depressing. It's actually kind of inspiring, kind of amazing. So give us your feedback and send us your suggestions. Go to won'thurtabit.com. You can leave a message, you can tweet us, you can Facebook us, you can do all kinds of things at won'thurtabit.com. And it would really help, really help if you went to iTunes and left a rating and a comment. That helps us with our pay drink, so we can perhaps get a little funding up in this thing, so we can do more and even better shows, if that's even possible. So finally, thanks to our producers, CC Herbert and Bill Connor. Sound design this week was by Bill Connor. Your hosts were Jess and Dave Mason and myself, Mel Herberts. Our experts, Dr. Stuart Swadron and Dr. Sherman. Josh Kay, he made the Reboa song. This is a production of Fulabu Incorporated. The information you hear on this one heard a bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So be sensible and keep it real. And mostly, you should keep listening because this, 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 this,